Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. As most of y'all have figured out at this point, time is a flat circle. So I'm not exactly sure when I met our next guest, John Hill. It probably was about a decade ago, if not more. Uh, we met through the magic of social media. John ran a blog called Pop Music Notes. Uh, I was a music blogger. I was probably writing for Pop Dose at the time. And uh, we connected pretty quickly because of a lot of our commonalities, which went way beyond music. Um, a lot can change in a decade or so. And while music has changed, our relationships to social media have changed. John and I have stayed in touch pretty regularly. Uh, while our conversation for Detoxicity begins and ends with discussion about music and some of the idols and icons that we love and have loved in the past, the meat of this conversation covers topics you'd be much more accustomed to on this podcast, although uh, creative arts is always a common thread, or usually a common thread anyway. Uh, those topics include John's coming out story, because I make every queer person tell their coming out story, um, some difficult relationships with relatives, uh, ongoing body image issues that haven't fully abated even though John took up bodybuilding over the pandemic and he is swole y'all like his body has completely changed and uh, the political situation in the u.s that caused john and his family to move from texas to colorado uh which is a bit of a questionable not a questionable move but uh the club q uh incident a couple of weeks ago the shooting uh definitely threw some doubt in his head uh threw some questions in his head um and we discussed that uh or during our conversation as well so everybody uh i think this is a really poignant um, really triumphant, ultimately, story. So uh, let's talk to John. Hello, my name is John Hill. I am a 50-something-year-old man living in just outside of Denver. I feel like I'm on my third or fourth life at this point. I started off as a, a music nerd as at a young age. True story, I used to call the library and get the top 40 if I didn't get it off the radio that week to make sure that I knew the top 40 every week because the library got a subscription to billboard magazine <laughs> and they would read it to me. And I'm sure those ladies read some song titles. They're like, what the heck is this? But wow. Yeah. I had a little index box with uh, index cards that I would like follow the full chart, but that led to me wanting to go into radio. My initial degree was associates in radio and TV bachelor's in communications, media management, so, of course, I didn't go into radio. I went into record store management instead because internships didn't pay the college bills, but running a record store barely did. So, I can relate. Yeah, I know you know, <laughs> but I got burned out on 
retail in the, the early 2000s and went in different directions and ended up in learning and development, which is really where my passion in life is. But music's always been there. Started writing my pop music notes blog in, in the mid and stuck with that for a few years. It's dormant at the moment, but I had a good run there for a while. Wrote a little bit for about.com on their pop music threads. And I actually just found a column that I wrote for the, the top 10 new Christmas songs of 2010. Oh boy. I totally forgotten most of the songs that I wrote about that I was praising. That's <laughs> not really great. But so my current situation is I live in Colorado. I have been with my husband for a total of 13 and a half years, seven of those married. And we have two mutts named Brody and Baxter who keep me busy. I work from home, but I still keep up with music, still have that passion and Picked up a couple other passions as well, including bodybuilding, which I've taken up over the last two years. Yes. What do you think it was that really set the uh, love for music off? Was there something that you can really point your finger to that was like, okay, this is it? Well, it was my mom's record collection. My uh, folks divorced when I was two. And it was really my mom, my brother and I. My brother and I are a year apart. And I remember that apartment on Dorchester Ave in Syracuse, New York in like 1976. And my mom loved disco. But before that, she loved the Beatles, specifically John Lennon. My mom claims I'm named after John Lennon. My dad supposedly claimed I was named after John Wayne. But the irony here is my dad's name is John. Okay. So do with that what you will, too. So because she had two kids, she didn't get to go out much, so... I learned to do the hustle. I learned to do the bump. I learned how to dance in the living room, my mom's apartment on Saturday mornings in between cleaning and laundry loads. That record collection had ELO. It had Rod Stewart. It had the Beatles, Abbey Road. It had Barry White's greatest hits. The funny thing is when I got into hip hop in, you know, late high school and really in college, my mom didn't understand where it came from. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's your record collection that started it. Because I could hear the Barry White samples in, in hip hop. And that's where they came from. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. It feels like such a quaint thing now. And look, I don't, I, I interact with people that are significantly younger than me for work, but I don't really have close relationships with people in their you know early 20s or even maybe mid 20s at this point. But I feel like our generation, or maybe the generation directly after me, uh, was really the last generation that would have that experience of, you know, pre-internet, you know, you weren't on your phone or on your computer all day during dead time. So you had to figure out things to do with your family and your friends that didn't involve a screen. Or if it involved a screen, it involved a TV screen, and that was kind of it. Sure. I think kids that grew up in the 90s are probably the last generation because at least they still had CDs that LimeWire and Napster weren't really in play yet. So they were still going to the record store. And I can vouch because I've managed enough record stores in the 90s that I know the hordes of kids that would come in on, you know, after school or on the weekend. So that's probably the last one. And then, yeah, then better or worse, uh, the whole model changed right. in the 2000s. So now, I'm obviously not of an age where I can access that directly. But it feels like it's a different ball game now for so many reasons. And I maybe I'm just saying this because I am of the age, but I feel like we got the better end of the deal. Sort of. I do too. I mean, I love the fact that you can access the entire history of music for free, essentially, now. 
Yeah. But, you know, there's a flip side to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was in high school, I got into a good amount of British pop and British R&B pop. So Loose Ends, Five Star, Mel and Kim, who had limited success in the U.S. And there wasn't a ton of information about them in the mainstream. I used to get smash hits, which would show up at my local bookstore like a month after it came out. But still, it was breaking news to me because, you know, they weren't even being talked about. I mean, that's where I got my initial stuff on Wham! and Duran Duran and stuff like that. So there was like a mystery to that kind of discovery. But I, I do envy kids being able to find, you know, music from all different cultures. And there isn't the gatekeepers that we had because radio stations were so tightly programmed and record stores and their charts were so tightly managed. You know, SoundScan opened that up a bit and, oh my gosh, people like rap and country music. But still it was that exploration and, and, you know, you had to find stuff. I think there's pluses and minuses on both sides of it, but it, it's all brought me to this point and I, I'm fine with where I'm at now. So Right on. Everybody that does this show that has a coming out story gives me a coming out story. And I don't think mm-hmm. in the entire time you and I have known each other, I've heard yours. I don't think we have. Yeah, I knew early. I found it in a book in my elementary school in fifth grade. I was pretty precocious. My uncle is gay and... He's pretty well adjusted and he's absolutely one of my heroes in life. He was in the East Village in the the mid 80s working as a nurse oh, during what? the AIDS crisis. I actually have a a book, the Essential AIDS book from like 1989 and he's acknowledged in the notes. Wow. He's such a great guy and he's got a great sense of humor and yet he understands the magnitude of what he's been through and and you know still continues to live his life but We talked and I shared with him and he told me that my mom was the most supportive family member when he came out. She was the one that was there for him that, you know, kind of had his back and was trying to play intermediary. And as a matter of fact, about 10 years ago, he sent me a letter that I sent him coming out to him. Oh, wow. So I, I have that. It's pretty cool. And it's funny to a, see my handwriting, because I don't write a lot of things, you know, by hand anymore. But also just to read where my brain was at the time and to know what I know now. But I came out to my folks. My stepdad had biases. They had sat me down prior to me coming out, basically telling me they didn't want me to be gay because blah, 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 you know, all of this. But it was undeniable for me. Being in the closet wasn't accept. I mean, it just wasn't an option in my brain. So I came out. I think my freshman year of college and my mom was, you know, talk about taking the impetus here. She said to me, I'm going to tell you everything I didn't tell your uncle. What was Um, that? That it was not the right way to be. I mean, honestly, I don't remember the details after that because my world had just been spun like a globe at full speed. And everything else after that statement was a blur. And it took a few years. My mom is 100% on board. She loves my husband. I'm happy. She's seen that I'm not some degenerate or <laughs> drug user or, or a AIDS patient or, Which, I mean, all the stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, let's keep it real here. Your sexuality doesn't necessarily have anything to do with that. No, it doesn't. But 
There is a stereotype. And, yeah. you know, look, that was kind of a devil's advocate prompt there. I get mean, where you're coming yeah, from. I had the same fears growing up and knowing that I was queer and then ultimately coming out and then going in and coming out and going in and coming out and doing that whole thing myself. So I, I empathize with where you're coming from. For sure. Yeah. She had the weight of the Catholic church that she grew up in as part of her basis. And there was also baggage there from my stepdad. We've never fully, fully discussed it, but there's enough there for me to know that there was a deeper reason why my stepdad wasn't crazy about that. And I'll never know. I haven't had contact with the man in a long time. So So is it safe to assume your mom and your stepdad are not together anymore? Oh, Correct. She remarried in 93 and they've been together for over 30 years. 30 now, years. So. Oh boy. That's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. As a matter of fact, I'm traveling to see them in a couple of weeks in Tennessee. And that's interesting too, because this stepdad, very much Fox News, very much right wing, did not come to our wedding because he was uncomfortable with it, but he's expressed regret about that, you know, and it's such a hard line to walk. It really is because he takes care of my mom. You know, my mom always lived in uncertainty, especially when it was just my brother and I. My dad was absent and support payments only came because he was in the army and they forced him to make the payments. And they were like $200 a month for two kids. I mean, even in the 70s. Nothing, yeah. So, yeah. And it never went up into the 80s. You know, that's all he paid. Wow. And so I, I understand her insecurities and in, in that. So our conversations are pretty limited when it comes to politics. I know that there are good people who have bad influences in there. So when I have to speak up, I speak up. But just on the general politics of things, not much from a conversational standpoint. So I, I've been thinking about that lately just because it is the holidays and I certainly have relatives who are not on the right side of the political conversation. And I have <clears throat> chosen to, and that's just me. I, I know that a lot of other people feel a lot more, con- not to say that I don't feel conflicted, but I think there are people that feel a lot more conflicted about that. And on one hand, there's a part of me that wants to be judgmental about that, but I know objectively that it's people that you care about people that you love it's hard yeah you know so it's an ongoing conversation in my head it's like where do you draw that line yeah my folks are in their 70s i've already seen the shift in my mom from where we started out with my coming out to where we are now i know that i've helped mold her worldview a little bit But I also know there are other influences that are molding her worldview. And it's so weird to me how, I guess, the the tendency of people getting older and becoming more conspiratorial and more guarded. If anything, I feel like being out in the world should make you more open and have a broader view of things. But that doesn't seem to be the way it is. And I'm grateful that I don't have that. And my mom told me at one point, she's like, you'll get older, you'll see it. And I'm like... No, you don't understand. Uh-huh. I know you see me as your white son that's successful and goes out into the world. But when I'm fully myself, there are people who don't want me to be successful. There are people who don't want me to be equal. Who don't want and you to be alive. They don't want me to exist. Right. Yes. They deny that I even exist in that form. Right. I think she understands that enough now, but people 
who are white and straight and Christian can be protective of other things like their wealth because they have the opportunities to be in positions where they could accumulate wealth in the first place. You know, the, the bar is a lot lower depending on how you're oriented to your world. And I, I know I have definitely gotten to places in my life because of who I am and the color of my skin and who raised me and, and the schools that I was able to go to. And I'm, grateful for that, but I have to recognize the full scope of the human existence. And I'm in the minority when it comes to being in as good a position as I am. And it's about trying to help everybody else to get to that point somehow or another. And however little contribution you can make, or at least making your voice heard to help promote that. Standing up is so important. I feel is like the least thing that people can do is stand up either, you know, as an ally or for some of us who are less obvious, you know, particularly when it comes to things like queerness or disability, because, you know, not every disability is visible, Yeah, you know, is to stand up and say, hey, you know, this is me too. There are a lot of queer people out there who lean unnecessarily hard into their privilege to the point where they become invisible. And I, I think it's really important to use the privilege that you have, use the spaces that you're in to stand up for other people who, you know, may not have the benefit of blending as well as some of us might. For sure. So switching gears, I love our our music retail common denominator. Mm-hmm. And I left really just because the industry changed. And, you know, the company that I was working for went out of business. Did you have the foresight to leave before things got really weird? You said you were burned out. You know, what was it that finally got you to consider something else? So, yeah, I, I worked for Transworld Entertainment. My first store that I managed was a, a tape world in Camillus Mall that was the size of a single bowling alley. I mean, it was one bowling alley and a slot in the middle of the mall and it had tapes on either wall and, and a rack of CDs in the middle. Transworld was not a good company. You may know that from the business side <laughs> of, of things, but not a good company. And I got out in 95, 96. And I went to work for Camelot, which for me was a much better company to work for and managed a few stores. And so of course, Camelot got acquired by (laughs) Transworld. And I saw how they were changing the experience in the Camelot stores. And That's really what got me. Most people that I was interacting with, they wouldn't understand the behind the scenes of the music business, politics and companies that are selling massive amounts of of music and paying their people bare minimums to do so because working in a record store is cool. cool. You should want to work here. So we don't have to pay you for that. We're allowing you to work here. That was kind of the attitude. So funny how some things have not. So yeah, whether you're selling the music in a store, whether you're an artist, whether you're a writer, it's all the same. Unfortunately, yeah, it, it's a privilege. It's a sad thing. I mean, look, people have to pay rent. You know, people have to pay bills. People have to save for retirement. And I think no matter where you are in the music industry, it's like, oh, you're lucky to work in the music industry so we can pay you less because so many people want to do it. You know, people feel like it's a perk and you're not working yeah. as hard if not harder i think in some cases than if you were working in any other field the saturday before christmas i was working hard i don't care the grandmother that comes in and and has the list of these artists that they have no idea who they are but they know their grandkids want them 
pick up the list and just start running around, Mm -hmm. grab them. Or the housewife who drives to work and hears a song on the radio and gives you one lyric in the middle of the song. Or hums it to you. And I'm good at that. Or I was good (laughs) at that at the time. I would pull those songs out and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you know it. I'm like, why did you ask in the first First place place. then if you didn't think somebody was going to figure it out? So you worked hard. I worked hard. Yeah. You were on your feet all day. Which, Mm -hmm. as someone who has a desk job now, I greatly, greatly appreciate the fact that I can sit because unless you were pregnant, when I was working in music retail, you were not sitting down for the entirety of the day. And also dealing with the public, you know, there's been a lot of talking in the last couple of years about how much better we should treat our service work, people who deal with the public day in and day out, because there are a lot of folks, they'll have a shitty day. You know, their boss will treat them like shit. Some battle happen in the home or whatever. And they come into a space where it's transactional. They don't know the people that are interacting with them. And they'll just be difficult or, or take whatever stress of the day out on someone who's standing behind a register just who's trying to help them. You know, retail workers, whether it's food service or, you know, cable people, those folks get shit on daily. Yes, they do. And I feel grateful that I worked in enough of those front end jobs dealing with the public. My first job was in a Burger King and I spent a good amount of my college time working in food service and then in retail. And you just saw the full scope of things. And honestly, I'm not trying to be that old dude, but I don't remember people being so difficult to deal with in retail as you see now, really? and maybe I just was a little more resilient. I don't know. Every once in a while, you'd have the people that would come in and they'd have three open CDs and none of these work. I want a refund. And then the battle begins yes. because that's not how <laughs> things are supposed to work. But that always felt like the exception to the rule to me. But I also know, you know, hindsight is, you know, I, I, wait, I shouldn't say hindsight. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that you remember what you want to remember. And maybe I'm blocking out some of those situations that may have come down the pipe that would be more vivid to me now. If I saw it as a third party watching a customer like that interact with somebody behind the counter, my skin crawls. I just can't believe we treat people like that or that there are those of us who treat people like that and act so entitled. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. Yeah there's the whole customer is always right mentality and people feel like you said entitled to take every shitty thing that they've dealt with over the last day or week and just spew it into this poor helpless retail worker who is making no money and is just trying to help you (laughs) You it sucks but you know unfortunately it is human nature yeah you've been kind of a, a nomad how'd you get all the way from the syracuse area to the other side of the country, almost. So when I was in retail, I worked my way up and down the East Coast. I went from Syracuse to Rochester. We opened the second Transworld version of what Musicland had as media play. Transworld opened as FYE, which now is the name of all of their stores. Mm-hmm. But FYE at the time was their version of media play. It was a massive store with you know, music and movies. There was an arcade. There was, you know, a big video game selection at the time. So I helped open that in the middle of Mall in Victor, New York, which is just outside of Rochester. Then I left 
trans world and moved to North Carolina and started working with Camelot music down there. So I was in Charlotte for seven weeks. And then I got moved to a store up in High Point, North Carolina. I lived in Greensboro, but the store was in High Point. Then I went down to Miami. Camelot had acquired Specs Music, which was in South Florida. And I helped, you know, with a couple of the stores down there, changing over to Camelot. Was there for seven months. Hated Miami. Really? Hated it. Oh, yeah. It just was not my vibe. It's a very aggressive vibe. You know, you're on the highway and you let somebody in that's coming in from an on-ramp and two other cars would be like bumper to bumper to bumper to bumper. I use that as an example. It just was not a chill vibe. I drive up to like Tampa or Fort Lauderdale just to get out of Miami. Side note, my husband was born and raised in Miami. So (laughs) kind of funny how that works. But I went from Miami up to Atlanta. And when I got up to Atlanta, I was managing a Camelot on the north side of town. And that's when Transworld acquired it. They wanted me back so badly. I know I wasn't the only person who had left Transworld and went to work at Camelot. So that was the writing on the wall. And then how did you end up coming out west? Yeah. So I met somebody after I moved to Atlanta and it was a really weird relationship. And uh, we had planned to do something for my birthday and then that fell through. And this was 2000. Yeah, I think it was 2000. And, you know, do you remember when the airlines would have web fares? You'd just see like a couple of like cheap fares out of a city. And there was one to Denver the weekend of my birthday. And I was like, I've never been. Sure, let's go. And I got out here the first day. It was kind of overcast. It wasn't a typical Denver day, but I didn't know it at the time. I kind of liked the vibe of the city. It wasn't quite as crazy as Atlanta. Traffic wasn't as heavy. And then the the next day I went up to Estes Park in Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, I drove through the foothills and came out on this vista. You see the valley below you before you drive down into Estes Park. And I was like, this is where I want to live. Huh, interesting. And I just spent the rest of the trip taking it all in and... Spent the next year planning and sold everything except what I could fit in my Saturn at the time. Saved up about a month's worth of money. Not the amount you should, but it was what I did. And I drove out here over the course of two days. Didn't have a place to live. Did not have a job. Found a roommate situation within a couple of days and found a job within two weeks. Wow. Actually, And I actually interviewed for the job on 9-11. Wow. Yeah, they called me about 9.15 Denver time, so 11.15 East Coast time. Things had gone down. Yeah, I mean, the towers were down. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, we know it's weird. We know it's a a rough day. The client really needs to fill this position. Would you still be willing to come in for the interview? And I was like, I need a job. Yeah, I'm there. So here I am on the 14th floor of a building in downtown Denver. Nobody's on the street. Nothing's in the air. It was just unsettling, but I got the job and that started the Denver journey. Wow. That's a crazy story. As a gay man, did you feel comfortable living in all of these different places? To different degrees. Just within North Carolina, I felt more comfortable in Charlotte than I felt in Greensboro. Sure. Miami, that wasn't a question. And and Atlanta really wasn't a question. I didn't really live in any small towns, you know, Greensboro is probably about as small as it gotten. That wasn't really that small. And even in Greensboro, I would drive to Raleigh or I'd drive to Charlotte 
to go out. So it's not like there were things to do. Those places were only like an hour and a half away. So, Right. Denver now almost kind of has this mythical status to me. You're, I think, the third or fourth person I've interviewed for this show that lives in the Denver area. And it sounds like a good place to live. And I'm saying this as, you know, I'm in the process of deciding what my future is, if there is a future here in New York City. And everybody that I know that lives in Denver seems to enjoy it so much. And I'm wondering what it is about Colorado, because you left and you came back fairly recently. Yeah, we all make mistakes. <laughs> I mean, well, your mistake because mine was Texas. a big one. I moved to the belly of the beast. Right. Yes, I did. I moved to Texas. It's not cheap to live here. I live in New um, York, so cheap is relative, my man. <laughs> it's probably cheaper than New York. It's probably not as cheap compared to New York as you might think it is, though. Huh, okay, that you know cost of real estate has gone through the roof and there's a lot of tech here now and businesses know that they can ask for more and get more because of the folks that are here without getting into the whole journey of Texas. You got to see plenty of it on Instagram, but at the end of the day, I'll pay for higher taxes and I'll carry a heavier burden in a state like this, where I know that my rights are protected. Sure where I, I'm not afraid that somebody's going to try to annul my marriage or is going to find ways to reduce me, make me less than. But I'll tell you, Mike, this last week's been really tough because I left Texas because I was afraid of where things were going in Texas. I was genuinely starting to become concerned for my family. When Roe v. Wade fell, that was the final straw for me because then... People in high places started talking about enforcing sodomy laws and reminding people that marriage, same-sex marriage is still illegal in Texas, according to the Constitution and the laws on the books. And we saw a very short window where we're like, it's get out now or we're probably stuck here for a while. It ended up being really good timing. And then to have a shooting like what happened in Colorado Springs happened in Colorado, where I came and it was supposed to be a refuge I'm getting a little choked up talking about it. It's disappointing. It's infuriating. It's so many things. And I don't regret the decision. I mean, I'm still in a better place. Our neighbors have been great. I've run into people that, you know, know my situation and don't have a problem with it. You know, I went into a Michael's yesterday because they had a framing deal with Black Friday. And there was a couple there in front of us. And they started chatting with us like we were just another couple. And that's not something that always happens in a state like Texas. It happens a lot more in a state like Colorado. A normal conversation happened. There was no awkwardness of it. So I'm glad to be where I'm at. And Colorado actually got bluer this election. So... Mazel tov. You know, I think think when things happen, like... Club Q, it's the reaction to things getting more aggressive. Oh, 100%. 100%. There are people in this world who feel threatened that their limited scope of what they see as acceptable is shrinking. People see themselves becoming a minority, like everybody else around them that's had a struggle that's been less than. Suddenly, these people are like, our way of life is threatened. And they're taking it out the only way that they feel they have the ability to because not getting there through the voting booth right? because their, their numbers are shrinking, thankfully. Right. Which is to say, 
I don't know if that makes things easier to deal with, but it could happen anywhere. So my mom texted me the other day and she was like, I hope you're staying safe out there. And I read through the lines and I was like, okay, she's reading the news. She's worried. Yeah. Am I worried? I, I no more worried than I am every other day when I wake up because it's like, okay, I'm black and I'm queer. So the chances of something happening to me are significantly higher, but uh, you can't live your life in fear, you know, and, and particularly you know, with this last thing that happened, you know, I'm really trying to lean into the joy that comes with being who you are. Cause you know, you could be anywhere and at any point it could get taken away from you. So you yeah. just have to kind of be the best person you can be while you're here. Cause you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Amen. So speaking of becoming the best person, or at least the best sculpted person you can possibly be, <laughs> you have been on a journey, child. Was it a pandemic thing that made you start to bodybuild? No, it was a Texas thing, but pandemic induced. Okay. So I don't know if you remember a year and a half ago, it was February of last year where an ice storm went through Texas and the entire state went through a blackout for three or four days. That's right. You know, I, I've got the script of this, how I describe it perfectly <laughs> down now. When somebody asks me about this, I'm like, John, what happened? The, black, to you? the blackout happened. It was a turning point. If I had been in Colorado, I would have gone to bed and the next morning everything would have been fine. I might've stayed home that day if the roads had been icy, but we wouldn't have lost power let alone lost power for three whole days. And, you know, the the power grid, while it may not be the best in Colorado, is apparently a heck of a lot better than it is in Texas. <laughs> the whole Texas experience had gotten to me. And after the blackout, I was in a dark place. I was like, what have I done? Not just to myself, but to my family and my family being James and her dogs. But, you know. Family's a family. Yo, yeah. And I looked at it as I contributed to the decision to move to Texas. What have I done? I The realization that I'd moved there for a cheaper cost of living and you get what you pay for. Apparently you get a subpar power grid if you pay less taxes. And I was in a dark place. I went into therapy because of that. I think we talked a little bit about it at the time. I was very fortunate that I got in with a gay therapist who I could talk very bluntly about relationship and living experiences and comfort and where you are and do it in a way where I didn't have to explain myself. He already had that context, which I think helped a lot. And it became clear to me that I needed an outlet. I had ballooned in weight. I was the highest that I had ever been. And I had kept the weight down in Colorado, you know, we would go for three, four mile walks every day because where else were we going? Right. We weren't, you know, right. I was able to at least maintain. I had been working out a bit before the pandemic. I, I was in better shape than I had been in a while, but to slide as far as I did. And then I knew that was contributing to my poor state of mind at the time, along with politics. So I started getting back into things and then I was like, I need help doing this, but I wasn't feeling comfortable being compelled to go to a, a specific gym at a specific time. I was open to going to a gym in 2001, but I really wanted to do it on my own terms. I like maybe in the morning when there weren't so many people, you know, not the 24 hour fitness jammed at five o'clock at night where people are shoulder to shoulder waiting for a machine. So I got a virtual trainer 
that I worked with and he came up with a diet for me. He came up with a workout plan for me and we started working on weight loss and it was specifically fat loss. And it's been 18 months now. I think I've lost 70 pounds total. I was 265 at my highest and I'm hovering around 195 right now. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. But more better than that is that, you know, I have a lower body fat now. I have more muscle. I have energy. I actually have motivation to do things, which I didn't have before that. So it's definitely been a journey. I'm continuing to hit it pretty hard at the moment, but the eventual goal is to get to a place where I don't feel like I have anything else to prove. And I just want to get into a perpetual maintenance phase where I'm not constantly having to enter my food into my fitness pal and track calories and macros and have to hit the gym five times a week. You know, I'm in my mid fifties. The sustainability of that type of thing is not going to be high at some point. So I I just want to get to a point where I can enjoy life while still having a, a good quality life at the same time. Right. In terms of body acceptance, that's something that doesn't get talked about a ton with men. Yeah. Was there a point during any part in your journey where you were uncomfortable with your body or, you know, unhappy with it besides, eh, maybe I got to lose a couple pounds here, a couple pounds there. That's a weird question for me. I've never been comfortable in my own body. I mean, I, I was a fat kid, you know, the word Husky triggers me because that was the size category for tough skins from Sears. I, I can tell from your face that you know this. So. <laughs> you know, and it's funny cause I was, um, I was a, very, very skinny kid, but I do remember you were slim is what you would have been. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. I was slim, but I remember going into clothing stores and seeing those Husky tough skins, gym jeans. So yeah. And kids, they smell blood in the water and I put it on myself. You know, that's the worst part of it, but it didn't help that your, your mom cracks a joke about the Huskies or whatever, or, you know, which is horrible because come to find out my mom had body issues, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's about learning from that. And yeah, it's projection. She didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, I never been happy with my body in my early to mid twenties. I'm five eleven. I was like 180 pounds. I, you know, two years ago, I would have killed to have had been 180 yeah, 185 pounds. But at the time, I thought I was fat. I it's might have bad. been a little bit out of shape, but I was not fat. Right. It's all perception. So it's wild now. I lost the majority of my fat over the first six months. So by this time last year, I, I was probably around 13, 14% body fat, which is really good for somebody my age. I still walk past the mirror and I'm like, who is that? It's really weird to look at your own body and not recognize yourself for a split second, Mm. but your brain will morph anything that it can get its hands on to fit the pre-wired conception of who you are or who you think you are. And it's been a learning experience trying to relearn who I am and more importantly, what am I capable of? Right, right. And that's super important to recognize because your brain will otherwise stay stuck in these old ways of thinking, you'll, uh, you know, consistently see your old self in the mirror, you know, physically, mentally. And it's important yes. to realize that, you know, we are changing out of those old perceptions. Yeah. It's, and also, I don't know what straight people deal with, but in the gay male community, body type, there is such a premium, I think, still, 
it was that way in the 80s and 90s when we were first coming out. And I think still to an extent now, it's kind of like you go to dating profile or I go to dating profiles because I'm single. And it's like, oh, you know, I go to the gym three, four days a week. You know, you must be in good shape. You must take care of your body, like blah, blah, blah. There's still very much that ideal of what a desirable man should look like. Now, obviously, you know, you're in a long-term relationship, you're married, but as a gay man, has that changed your perception of anything going through this journey over the last few years? It's really interesting. I think we are at a point in our society where straight men now realize that they don't have to internalize their their complex relationships with their bodies. I think we're finding out that straight men are just as conflicted and have just as much body dysmorphia as gay men. It's a stereotype for one thing that, you know, I'm gay. I need to be skinny. I need to be buff. I need to get a man. Whereas, you know, straight men have always been like, ah, I'll have a beer. You know, (laughs) we, we all look the same. It's all fine. But I think internally, you know, it's just our nature to want to be better. And we have a society that doesn't necessarily encourage people to do that. And by saying you want to be better, you're admitting some type of deficiency, like you're less than. And I think especially for straight men who are constantly projecting an era of I'm not less than I'm at top of the chain. That's scary stuff to be able to admit that. Right. But I'm encouraged that, that there are conversations happening in certain places where straight men feel comfortable to say, yeah, I've got that issue too. I don't know. So I don't go to like 24-hour fitness or crunch or chain gyms anymore because I find the vibe is a little more casual. I like going to a place where people are serious, where, yeah, they're checking their phones in between sets, but they're not like doing Instagram reels and taking up a machine for five minutes just to set up a tripod just right. You know, especially at five o'clock in the morning, it's guys around my age who are going in because they care about themselves enough to work out and do it before they go to work. And it's really cool for me. The flip side though, is that the majority of the folks that I see and, and that I follow in social media that are in bodybuilding there's a tendency towards right-wing mentalities and thinking. And I I always wonder if some of that's overcompensation because you're in a hobby that if you go professional with it, people are looking at your mostly exposed body, you know, and, and dudes are, you know, talking about somebody. They're like, Oh my God, you've got a great ass. No homo. You know? Yeah. Just admire the body. Just say, you know, this guy has amazing genetics and he's been able to do things with his body that most people can't do. Why does it have to be sexualized? Why why does it have to be something other than just being healthy and taking care of yourself? But let's be honest, there's a level of vanity there. I I take pride in being able to wear t-shirts that kind of show off my arms and my chest now because I've never had that ever. (laughs) I can wear clothes that fit me better now because, you know, going back to how I was raised, my mom, even though it might not have been ideal, prepared me for a life of shame of covering up my body. You know, she taught me how to, you know, certain colors and, you know, you wear vertical stripes and not horizontal stripes and all those cliched things that we learned as fat kids. So uh, at least I can speak for the fat kids in any way. So yeah, it's cool to me to be where I'm at, but 
I, I also know it's also in some ways a compensation for what I felt I was lacking for much of my life. And I continue to try to find a balance where I'm grateful when people say, you've done a great job. You look awesome. You know, you just slip into those old habits of deflecting or, you know, demeaning yourself or, you know, self-deprecating humor when somebody says something like that. And rather than just say, thanks, I really appreciate that. So, right. And to kind of circle back to an, an earlier part of the conversation, I think for a lot of queer men our age, you look good is code for you don't look sick. Yeah, isn't that sad? Yeah. So uh, there's also uh, an, a whole other mental gymnastic thing that uh, a lot of gay and bi men have to do around that, you know, of a certain age where it's like, you know, if you lose weight, you're sick. You know, there's that whole mental thing that I don't think straight people or even necessarily younger queer people, you know, gay men under 30 uh, don't necessarily have to contend with either. No, they don't. (laughs) But I'll tell you, you look good from a 30 year old is different than a you look good from a 55 year old because this whole daddy thing is real. I'm just telling you, I've had it happen on a couple of occasions where a younger dude is like hit on me and I'm like. Really? As my facial hair becomes whiter, I am starting to get the daddy thing now. And I'm like, I ain't nobody's daddy. That just is very weird to me. But then I'm also like, I'm 46 years old. I could theoretically have a grown ass child right now. I'm very much daddy age. I'm older than my grandmother was when I when I was born. So, huh. you know, I guess that's real. And it is nice to look. I wouldn't date anybody younger than 30. I don't think. Right. But if uh, a 28 year old was to walk up to me and be like, you know, you're very attractive, you know, that would make me feel really good. (laughs) My rule when I was single was nobody under 26 knows what they want out of life and they're just conflicted and probably trouble. Right. So 28's in there. (laughs) I need cultural touchstones. So yes. if you weren't of age when Michael Jackson died, then I don't know that I could date you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, let's be honest. I probably wouldn't date somebody 28. Right. I'm very thankful that I'm not on the market right now anyway. <laughs> yeah, but by the same token, people should be able to do the work to realize that there probably are parallels to those cultural touch points. I, you know, if I accepted the fact I was dating somebody in their 30s, I would hope they haven't had to deal with a lot of death. Yeah. You no, know, and and I wouldn't necessarily expect them to understand to that level, but there's got to be some commonality there. Yeah. But it's weird for guys like you and me to have lost. I'm looking at the wall behind you. I mean, with George and Michael, and I've got Frankie, Frankie Knuckles on my list. I've got Prince on my list. Wh- and to have lost Whitney, to have lost all those folks in such a short amount of time, especially a couple of them in rapid succession, like George and Prince. I mean, it's weird because if you think about much older people who grew up like at the beginning of the rock and roll era, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry and little Richard have all died in the last five years. Yeah. So there's a 30 year gap. And then all of like the major pop stars of the eighties, with the exception of Madonna at this point are all gone. You know, they all died young. You know, none of them died a natural death. It's really disconcerting. Yeah. I, for sure. 
Yeah, I'd add Janet to the list. Right. We, yeah. We've got Madonna and Janet. Yeah, still, I mean, but... <laughs> and it always strikes me yeah. as more 90s than 80s. Right. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. And point taken it makes you wonder when the, uh, the Super Deluxe set came out for uh, Sign of the Times, the current out of Minneapolis did a, a podcast series. And they talked to a lot of folks associated. They talked to Susanna. They talked to Wendy and Lisa. They talked to Susan Rogers. They talked to, you know, all the folks that were in Prince's orbit at the time. He wasn't a great person no. in a lot of ways. No. He was a jerk. Was a I dick. mean, and I mean, just how he did Wendy and Lisa with the credits for Sign of the Times, they were on a lot of those records and they got zero writing credits. They got a thank you at the very end of the credits. Yeah. You know, and this is somebody I consider an idol. But you kind of get to a point where you have to accept there, that there's good that can come out of any situation right. or any muse. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if I hung out with George Michael on a regular basis, I'd think he was a jackass. Right. I, mean, they, I just have a feeling that... They're problematic human. It's part of this larger cultural conversation that we've been having the last several years about people who are maybe not necessarily people you want to hang out with in a bar, but are people whose art uh, really, really moves the needle. And I think for a lot of people, that pain, whatever it is they're dealing with, that they didn't have the spoons to deal with in life is what drove their art to be so good. You know, unfortunately. Yes. At the end of the day, George Michael's art resonates with me because, you know, I think we probably had some similar experiences in our younger years that he was then able to convey in his music that I, I would never be able to convey. That doesn't mean that he wasn't problematic, that he didn't, you know, maybe not treat people in the best way that were in his orbit or have expectations for people that were not reasonable. Right. You know, I mean, even today you hear about people like Adele and things that are going on around her. It just seems to come with the territory, but you know, from a, an artistic standpoint, to be able to to glean out what resonates and where the positive is. To me, there is no negative about Sign of the Times. Sign of the Times was brilliant. It really, it captured my attention because it was a snapshot of where I was at as an 18, 19 year old looking at the world and going, what the hell am I walking into? Right. And I'm like, this dude's lived a life and he still feels the same way about the world right now that I do. Yeah, you draw parallels. And, you know, ultimately, I think talent plus success plus entitlement is going to lead to some dark roads that I think is kind of the way human nature is, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, my partaking of drugs has been extremely limited in my life. But you can't help but wonder if there's something there that is helping people reach their creative pinnacle. But Clearly, there's a downside to it, too, right. as we've seen by people who have been too deep into it. And just to try and to try and granulize one human being who has lived so much like some of these celebrities have, I think is is impossible. There's so much going on there and good and bad. Right. And we've all got that aunt or uncle that is pretty pretty foul or cousin. And they're not making music. Right. They're not speaking to people, but they're, right. you know. Somewhere in their life, there's good in there, too, or you would hope that there is anyway. So it's just it, people are people. Or parent. Right. Exactly. Parents. Uh, thank you, John, for sharing your multi-layered story with us. Uh, he brought up so many interesting points. And I do think that from a pop culture perspective, 
it is really interesting to note that so many of the musical icons in particular of the of the day of the 80s um, have succumbed at a young age um, to various uh, vices, which I think can all be tied into mental health and, 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 you know, a conversation around that. And I'm not just saying that because I do this podcast and we talk so much about mental health, but I would love somebody to do like an, maybe not necessarily an academic study, but some sort of study that covers, you know, Michael and Prince and Whitney and George and um, just kind of charts their, their course downward uh, and that ultimately led to their all premature deaths and uh, tie those things together because I do think that there is a tie in there. Anyway, back to John, who this podcast was actually about. Uh, you can still find him on Twitter at Pop Music Notes. And you can find him on Instagram at Rocky Mountain Ranger. That's R-O-C-K-Y-M-T-R-A-N-G-E-R. And uh, once again, thank you, John, for taking the time out of your schedule to sit and chat with me. And hopefully let's do it again soon. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace